1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny.
2: This week,
1: Miranda Doyle shares her riveting memoir, A Book of Untruths. Miranda Doyle graduated with an MA from Goldsmiths in creative and life writing and has been mentored through the Arts Council Escalator Scheme. Her autobiographical story Autopsy was selected by Irving Welsh for inclusion in the Scottish Book Trust's A Day Like This anthology and broadcast on Radio Scotland and A Book of Untruths which we're going to be talking about today is Miranda's first book. Miranda, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Lovely to be here, thank you.
1: So the first thing I want to ask is why a book of untruths, this book is structured, the chapter headings are lies, basically, so why?
2: Well, I was lecturing to philosophy students on self, and um, the four books that we were given, Rousseau and Camus and Girard, they were all big lies attached to them. But also when you think about the genre of memoir is so disreputable, partly because there are so many fake memoirs, as. The Fray, Million Little Pieces, and as the um, Holocaust. A lot of Holocaust memoirs are found out to be not true. And, um, and then there's a celebrity memoir. I know a ghostwriter who does celebrity memoir, and then you think, really? That fits on the same shelf as what's supposed to be true and what's supposed to be nonfiction. And so this was a kind of play on that.
1: And of course, in terms of reliability of, of straightforward memoirs, not ones that are you know, explicitly like a million little pieces. Yes. Obviously, first of all, your, you know, your memory of events is obviously only one side of that thing. It's probably a bit shaky. Yes. But also, you, you're entirely presenting, you're curating the story of your own life in a memoir.
2: Yeah, and there's so, so many problems with that because I can't remember what I said to you two minutes ago. Mm. So the idea that I would have any dialogue and pretend that I was being honest, is ridiculous. But also that we're we're growing up in families where, well, this particular family tends to disagree. And about the past, we perhaps disagree a lot. And so which is the most honest version? And maybe it's not about being honest, it's about trying to be the most truthful with our our own idea of what the past was like. The
1: other thing you do in the book is there's regular little asides about The brain and memory, and you know people like Elizabeth Loftus who work on um, false memories and things. Why did you want to include that sort of thing?
2: I work for a professor who looks into inherited stress, and he's carving out that middle ground between nature and nurture, and that we can't make a strong border between the two; that they actually meld. And my partner is a neuroscientist, and so I'm surrounded by science and. Some of it is just so interesting. I love it. And, and just in it, like being a magpie, not, not really um, feeling that I have to know it all, but just picking up the things that excited me. And that that's why it's in the book.
1: I want to talk about why you wanted to write this memoir, first of all. And that will become more of a, you know, a relevant question as we get into the book okay. and talk about some of the things okay. that are in it. When did the, what was the sort of the point where you realised that you were going to write this book?
2: I was supposed to be writing literature, you know, some something that you're entirely made up. The novel. But I, um, my mother started coming up with her truths, to, you know, deciding that she would start telling me the truth about Dad, who had recently died. And um, I found it really unsettling that actually my idea of the past was being wiped out. She was just completely demolishing it. And so one way to sort of, cheer myself up was to write these short and they were like poems where you could spit one out and huge rage and laughter uh, late at night and I wasn't intending it to be a book because I've got loads more than is in the book lots of sort of revenge lies as well that uh, maybe some people would really be irritated about but I think I think I um, was doing it as catharsis and as fun, and I hope that comes across. So I, that I'm hoping to find some humour in as much as I can, and then people would say, "But what are you writing, Miranda? What are you doing?" And um, of course, I was failing because loads of writers do fail; they don't, they not get published, and so the novels are still underneath bed. And out of a, in a fit of kind of shame, I sent out some lies to an agent. And she got back to me within three hours and said she needed to see them all. And then I started to really worry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I mean, you're right, not everybody can be published. So when you're writing about other people and you're writing sort of what you've just described as revenge lies, for instance. (laughs) I mean, let's talk about, I don't know, the ethics of that. You know, when you were writing this book, how did you sort of settle that in your head that there was going to be... At some point, other people were going to read this. Well, uh,
2: when I was writing it, nobody else was going to read it. It's just for me, and it was fun. I would ev- occasionally circulate a revenge lie to other mothers. You know, like at the school gate, the one you really is really pissing everyone else off. I might have written a lie about her, the what the one she told me or the one I told her, and then I would circulate it to all the others, and we would hoot with laughter about it. But those are not in the book, and so I I just didn't think anything would happen with these, and so. I think that changes how you write. Mm -hmm. If I had thought that the people who've read it have read it, that have now read it, I would have written a completely different, different kind of read.
1: (laughs) Before we get into the actual substance of the story, just something about how, as we just talked about memory, Uh um, obviously, you know, we'll be introducing your your mother and father and your, your brothers as we go along. But in terms of, like researching it as you said you know you yeah. can't you jokingly said you can't remember something you said a couple of minutes ago in terms of remembering beyond your own side of events how did that sort of research I guess is it's not yes. really the right word for this because it's other people's recollections but, but how did you go about gathering?
2: Well I think that's perhaps what has been irritating Is that I wasn't really interested in anyone else's (laughs) recollections because, of course, nobody else was going to read it. It was just something for me. So, and I think so. If somebody sets out to write a memoir knowing that it will be published, I think they end up with an entirely different and probably a much more objective story at the end. Whereas mine is, uh, without doubt, purely my own version. But I there was one occasion where my brother. Sean told me after he'd read the manuscript that there was one lie that was missing and he insisted that I write it and when I gave him the first version he said that's not good enough and I was like no I don't want to write this I really don't want to write this Um, and then he sent me back his feedback and how I'd where I'd gone wrong and I rewrote it a second time maybe even a third time until it was good enough for him and I'm glad that didn't happen all the way th- through the book that would have been a shitty book um yeah I think it's I I felt it's a matter of respect to him that I needed to do, the, do this for the, this one event that was important to him but I'm really glad I didn't have to do that all the way through
1: I think we might potentially be talking about that event in a little while if I'm guessing the the one you're talking about um, so, yeah, I was going to say, let's let's introduce your mother and father, but we'll start with your father, John Doyle, because, of course, when this story begins, he's married to somebody else, isn't he? So introduce yes. us to him.
2: He was the son of a lighthouse keeper, and his father went mad when Dad was, I think, four and was sectioned in Northern Ireland. And um, he has seven brothers and sisters, and so they all had to emigrate to Scotland, in order to not be taken into care and for for his mother to find work, and so he comes from a very sort of poor and impoverished background, single parent family, etc. And he'd married somebody that he was um, had fallen in love with young, and she died at twenty nine after my eldest brother was born.
1: And so you, after your uh, Adrian, your eldest brother, yeah. is born. Um, well, actually, before that, before she dies, of course, they they adopt a a second son sean you've also you've already mentioned why adopt him
2: well i mean again uh dad isn't alive to be able to explore this my my theory with him but he was told that um his wife would die if she was ever got pregnant again and so sex was off and i think his wife was quite happy with that you know she'd her she had her lovely son and she was quite happy with that but I think he was extremely frustrated extremely frustrated from the stories he left behind so in terms of research there was quite a few pieces of fiction that he'd left and in those pieces of fiction there's a lot of use of the prophylactic and picking up people on buses (laughs) so I don't know how much that he actually did or whether this is fantasy but um,
1: although it does turn out, he could he could conceivably have done those. Things.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but he one way around it, because of course um, in the Catholic Church to use condoms or anything like that would have been uh, the priest would have gone, been very angry about that. I think my my theory is that they adopted to to offset the use of a condom because then you're still growing your family in a good Catholic way. And so they adopted Sean and soon after they adopted Sean, Pat died. And I speculate that again, it might have been an abortion that she died from because condoms are not fail safe, are they? And she might have to protect herself and having been told that she would die. And I guess it was very dangerous in the 60s if you if you don't go through childbirth in, in a straightforward way, it can be quite dangerous. So I, I guess maybe in a desire to protect herself, she had an illegal abortion.
1: And so your mother, Maureen, yes. comes on the scene and now she has a completely different background to your father. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know how much of the book we want to give away as we go, but it does turn out, as it goes on, that her background might not have been quite as respectable as she <laughs> initially thought. However, tell us about where she came from.
2: Well, She came from um, a family that owned a woolen factory in um, Scotland, in Perthshire, and um, they had a lot of land, and they they still have a lot of land, and still have a lot of money, and nice cars. And uh, she was brought up by nannies, and was, I guess, sort of landed gentry, but fell pregnant when she met Dad, quite quickly, because I think he was quite persistent, and Again, there was another abortion, and I think the guilt over that abortion because it would have been illegal, even though this time it was on harley street she or maybe 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 she really really loved him but i i think it, I think it was there was a lot a lot that was difficult and that her family really didn't want them to marry and yet that happened
1: and so then you come along and uh-huh. eventually your younger brother Ed as well. And there are scenes in this book of the household when you're all yes. young children, and it's a very angry and violent place. Isn't yes, it?
2: yes, I think I was very fearful all all the time, and very unwilling to do anything bad or upset my father in any way, in case uh, he would get angry. But not necessarily just angry with me, but angry with any anyone. I just, I just wanted him to be um happy. But Sean, our uh, our brother, adopted brother, found that extremely difficult to follow orders or 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 do anything easy. And so he was being beaten most days and that was very hard to watch. I, I think. I think I, I felt terrified.
1: There's a scene in the book where which I think might be the one you were talking about on the motorway. Yes. With Sean. Tell us that story.
2: Well um I'm I'm look, looking back and I'm presuming that my mother has found out that Dad has had another affair and we're all in the car um, heading down to her brother who is living in England and Sean is in the car with me and my younger brother and I guess we're young, we're primary school aged and Sean's older and my mother's not in a good mood and Sean kind of represents to her the decision she's made that she's having to mother someone who a child who's really struggling and he's struggling educationally he's struggling behaviorally and he's winding the two of us up something absolutely chronic and it's a long drive and um I she pulls into a service station which didn't have any M- M&S food hall then or costa coffee it was just a bleak car park and um Kicks Sean out of the car and tells him to hitch back to Edinburgh because she no longer wants him in the car with us. And again, I feel horribly guilty because it's probably my crying or my complaining that has put him out of the car.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
1: to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Miranda Doyle and we're talking about her memoir, A Book of Untruths. And you've mentioned a couple of times, you alluded to your father's infidelity a couple of times, Miranda. Yes. Um, so let's talk about that now and I guess your mother's slow sort of realisation that it was going on and how she dealt with it over the years.
2: Well, it, when she started telling her truths after he died, it's clear that she was aware of things perhaps all this, all the time and um, because when she fell pregnant with my younger brother Ed, she contracted a sexually transmitted disease from him um, which can only be proved that he that he was a monster. So I think she was always aware of it and and I think what was sad for her and continued all the way through her life was that he would shag her friends. So that kind of disloyalty was not only him, but her friends too. And I, I wish he'd been kinder and played further away from home, but I think it felt easier just to look in the nest and see what was available. Oh,
1: There's a particular letter as well that gives him away in the book.
2: Oh, yes. So she, um, the way that she told me that he, I, of course, I, I had no idea he went to church. <laughs> I I had no idea that he was such a disloyal man. Uh, so when she told me that she had found a letter in his stamp collection, which was an, again another family friend, that they'd been having a relationship with one another, I just couldn't believe. I just couldn't believe her. I thought, no, no, that wouldn't happen. He wouldn't do that. But the more time went on, and the more evidence that she showed me, and the more I I dug myself. I realised that the reason I didn't believe her was that he had always made her sort of unbelievable to the rest of us, and that's very sad too. So all
1: of this time, we've talked about how there was violence in the household. Yes. What's the relationship like between you and your three brothers during all of this time? How do you deal with it between yourselves, or not at all?
2: Well, I felt that we were... Uh, I was very close to my younger brother, Ed. But um, Sean would play us off against one another and be favouriting one person over another. And, And there was a way of kind of finding control in a world that he had no control over. And I think that was very difficult. And my eldest brother, Pat's son, Adrian, was very remote. I think he was thoroughly depressed. And um, no one talked about his mother anymore. Any evidence of her disappeared. And he was beaten a lot as well. Um, And he's 10 years older than Ed and and 8 years older than me. And so he he was always very remote.
1: Around this time, your father gets a job in Saudi Arabia Uh and goes off. And there's a period of time where you're travelling over there periodically. And, and you, you recreate vividly in the book what it was like at this time, which I guess would have been in the early 1980s to be travelling to yes. Saudi Arabia. Yes. What was that like?
2: Airports have really improved. There's more than a toilet now <laughs> and a very uncomfortable chair. I think I find it very... I think it was the destination of heading out of sunshine and, and actually... Saudi Arabia. Then, when you were when I was young, and so I wasn't having to cover up. I, um, I wasn't having to wear caped hands or or cover my hair. I, as a child, it it was very free, and the the beach was great. And then having to head back to rainy, 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 rainy Scotland was very, very sort of hard. And um, the flights would leave it one in the morning from Dakhon. And we'd get into Aberdeen, I don't know, about 8 o'clock in the morning and it would always be freezing. And we wouldn't have slept all night. And I thought, yes, it was was hard and lonely, yeah.
1: And you were put into boarding school Uh in Scotland. And as it turns out, Gordonstone, which is, you know, everybody will know is uh, where Prince Charles went to. (laughs) Yes.
2: Um,
1: It's not Hogwarts, is it?
2: No, it is. Really isn't it? Really, really isn't. And Ed would tell you that he enjoy he enjoyed his time there very much, and um, I think many many children did, but I don't think it was a safe environment. And my mother, I think, was delighted to be a fellow parent to the Queen. You know, having married this sort of poor Irish man, to now be able to sort of call herself an equal to. To those other parents, was delicious. So when I did try to speak to her about how difficult things were, or the fact that the that we were being made to swing naked, or or things like that, she she didn't really want to hear those those things because they were too uncomfortable, maybe for her.
1: And yeah, you, you do talk in the book about various incidents of sexual assault. I guess we no other way to describe it that happened in the book by teachers on pupils. Um, and I wanted to talk about after the book came out, yes. that ended up basically in the press. Like, uh, you know, yes. if, you, if you Google, you could see lots of sort of provincial Scottish newspapers talking about, you know, how you've had the temerity to come and bring up this stuff about, really? about the school. Really? I don't yeah. myself. Oh, yes. no!
2: You're kidding! Well, I was
1: going to ask you how that was, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> perhaps um, you can't tell me that. No, no, no. I'm... Um... <laughs> Oh, no wonder everyone's suddenly very pissed off with me. I was contacted by a newspaper, um, a Scottish newspaper, to talk about the book. And so I thought I was being interviewed about the book. And then uh, she was lovely. Jenny was lovely and seemed to really have really enjoyed it, the book. But then when it passed on to her editor, things changed. And I think the opportunity of getting Prince Charles serious and sexual abuse all in the same headline was just too good an opportunity to miss and so they did it and um I was complicit with that thinking that it was a good thing to do to speak finally honestly as I could and I must admit a lot of children that I had been at school with did contact me afterwards and were pleased to um that I had
1: those years at school at that boarding school, um, uh-huh. they they weren't particularly good training for life as an adult. You you leave school, move down to London on your own, and those early years when you know, I wanted to talk about those early years when you're living in London,
2: uh-huh.
1: um, starting to work, yes, and um, having various misadventures, shall we say? Again, you're not really school's not really equipped you.
2: Alive. No, no, it hasn't, and I think. Girls at Gordonston did have to do a sewing class, which the boys didn't have to do, and there was a bit of cake making. But I, I, um, I think we were just supposed to marry, and um, that was all that we were good for. And I know that Dad felt the same way when I rang him up and said, "What am I going to do about a pension at age 20? Which perhaps kind of a bit someone had probably come into work and given a and talk about it. He said, Oh, just marry one. Just marry one. Uh and so I I felt that my future was very cramped and my mother decided I should be a secretary like she should, and because I'd managed to arse up my university place and my degree place and I'd crashed out of school with only a feeble amount of A levels. Um so I was heading for the skids and um I did manage to work in London. I love love the freedom of London, that nobody is looking over anyone's shoulder and knows what anyone else is really doing. They're not nosy. And that was incredibly freeing. But it did also mean that I struggled to keep myself together and I was drunk a lot, I think, 24-7 I think, for a long, long period and shagging everything that moved. Mm.
1: It's all in the book. (laughs) Um. You've already mentioned your father, both of your parents of are dead now. Yes. And um, what was your relationship with them like towards the end of their lives?
2: It was really uh, good. I um I had a very bad period with them straight after school, when I f- feel they were very disappointed with my choice of man, and everything else. But when they wanted to um, complain about one another, they would find. A very thoughtful year, um, you know I was so pleased that they would want to share those things with me um, that I gratefully accept uh, you know gratefully listened to them most days, they would be on the blower most days, individually, never together and um so it was very and I think that 's what was so difficult to realize that that had all been a bit of a lie that um there had been so much deceit, and I had been just so credulous.
1: There's violence, so horrific, horrific incidents in this book. And and I wasn't expecting the one that, I guess, shocked me the most was there's a scene where you go and visit your father's brain.
2: OK. <laughs> well, I was so pissed off. I just couldn't believe it. And so I rang up the southern general in Glasgow and said, do you still have his brain? They said, yeah, they, they did. And um, so I had to go see it. Because, of course, that's the organ of deceit, isn't it? And um, I thought that I would feel loads better having Conan had look and seen. Yeah, just kind of understood that he was human. And I guess it was it was very um, settling in that regard. Because, uh, you know, he, he's just like everybody else. We're we all liars uh, to a greater or lesser extent. And um, I could see that his brain, especially in his final months, a good portion of it had been cut out. You know, I don't know how he was functioning, really. So much was gone. And, yeah, it was wonderful to have that opportunity. But I still think he's sitting in a bucket out there because I wanted to take him with me um, and cast him out to sea, the Irish Sea, because he always wanted to be buried back in Ireland. And I thought I would just turf them over the side of a ferry in a fury um, but they said the brain has a um, same constituency as Semtex and so that I wouldn't get through any security at all with it <laughs> so I had to leave it where I was.
1: Just to finish this off then, let's talk about what the reception has been to the book since it's been published by people who you wouldn't have expected at the point where you were writing it to have read it
2: hmm I think my mother's family are. I knew. I suppose I always predicted that they wouldn't be happy about me exposing their family as a bit of a lying lot as well. But one of my aunts came and heckled me at an event in Edinburgh, and one character's daughter turned up at the same event and was very tearful. And I, I, I don't feel very courageous about that, you know, I just want to find the fire exit and run. <laughs> but, but but, strangers have been incredibly kind and that's been the most amazing and generous, generous thing.
1: So I've been talking to Miranda Doyle. We've been talking about her memoir, A Book of Untruths, which is out now in paperback from Faber and Paper. Miranda, thank you so much for sharing it with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.